Hi, this is Anthony Esposito from the infamous Ace Freely Band. Hello, my name is Blaze Bailey. Hi, this is Bruce Kewley. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey everyone, this is Dave Menichetti from YNT. This is Dave Starr from Wildstar. What's up, this is Doc Coyle from the band God Forbid. Alright, this is Jason from uh, Kings of Modesty. What's happening? This is Jeremy Goldberg from Age of Evil. Hey, what's up? This is Joey Z from Life of Agony. Hey, what's up? This is Mercedes from Kitty. I'm Rasmus Goldberg from New Keepers of the Water Towers. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owen. Hey, this is Steven from I Wrestled a Bear Once. Hey, this is Tara. And this is Ivy. And we're half of Kitty. Hey, this is Wolf from the Chariot. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hi, this is Robert Flashman. Hey, everybody. This is Bobby Rock. Hey, this is Zach from Nine Point. Hey, this is Frank from New Revolution. And you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Robbie Crane from Rat, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Go get them. Hey, what's up? This is Joe from Misery. Hey, this is John from Misery. Hey, this is Dan Lorenzo from Hades, Nonfiction, The Cursed, and my horrible solo music. You're listening to my boy Victor on Mars Attacks. G'day, this is Guy from Airborne, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Keep rocking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Welcome, one and all, to episode 13 of Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host, Victor, and what we're going to do here is bring you an episode that originally aired on Mark Striegel Radio. This is originally supposed to be the quote-unquote pilot for a series of shows uh, that I was trying to put together called 10, where what we did was talk to artists about 10 songs that they feel um, define their legacy. Uh, in this episode, we have Bruce Kulick, former guitarist of KISS, current guitarist of Grand Funk Railroad, former guitarist of Union, been involved in all these different tribute albums, along with his brother Bob. Essentially, this interview was done to help promote uh, BK3 when that came out, and this is going back a few months. This is towards the beginning of the year. Uh, a great album if you haven't checked it out as of yet. has a bunch of different uh, interesting guests on it. Uh, behind me, what you hear is Dogs and Morrison from his first uh, solo album called Audio Dog. In any event, you get the gist. What we're going to do is touch on ten different songs, five off of BK3, five from his past, and uh, he's going to explain a, a little bit about all of them. So without further ado, what I'll do is leave you with a little Dogs of Morrison and jump right into the interview segment. Dogs of The Dogs of Morrison The Dogs of Morrison with our debut show of 10 where we're going to recap 10 songs that involved Bruce five from his new album called BK3 and five from his past from my history yeah from your history yeah. <laughs> we'll uh, start off with uh, a little BK3 here uh, we had talked to Bruce in the past uh, regarding the album and we're going to try to go a little further in depth 
with some of these songs. Uh, the first single off the album is going to be Hand of the King with Nick Simmons. How did right. that song come about? Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, all the special guests that wound up on my record were, was really organic. I didn't really know going into writing some of the songs. Um, fortunately, once I got Gene to agree that he would be on the record, he kind of offered up his son, basically. You know, just, you know, like the same day we discussed him being involved, which I kind of kindly told him I was going to ask him about, but I, of course, was more nervous about whether or not he was willing to participate. Sure. So then it was about that whole, like, I knew Nick, I, you know, seen him hanging around, I remember having a nice conversation with him backstage at Gene's Roast that he did for the show, and Nick being really, he is that personality you see on the show, which is, he's very, very bright, and he's very creative, and he can, he's the one guy that could really take the, uh, the piss out of his father, you know, properly. <laughs> which right. I love. But um, it took a little while for Jeremy, my producer, and I. We wanted to break the ice nice with him, and I invited him down to the studio one day when I was recording. And I realized how A&E sometimes like, follows him everywhere. I always might get this call from A&E. Hey, can we come in? I said, you know, I'm just going to play him a couple of songs. This isn't like anything worthy of being on a TV show, which they agreed about. But I realized, wow, I mean, Nick, Nick you know, they, they, Nick's whole vibe is always going to be under the microscope in the sense of the show. But that's cool. And then right away he played us uh, things he was into. And then Jeremy and I kind of had two songs that were on the table that I knew I would not sing that I really wanted to be on BK3. And one was actually one that uh, Eric played drums on, but that Tobias Samet wound up singing. But um, the other one was a song that uh, I knew was a terrific track, but I really didn't know what Nick's taste was. And uh, he jumped all over that one very clearly. He said, this is the one I want to sing. All right. I said, okay, well, the lyric concept we have right now is very loose, and we don't care if it stays or not, but we, you know, ironically, it was called Bigger Than You, and, you know, I think Nick's one of the tallest guys I personally know, to be honest with you. I think he's 6'7". So anyway, he took that track home. I remember I was doing some Grand Funk dates, and he actually got together one time with Jeremy when I was out of town, showing Jeremy what he liked, what he had, and where he was headed with it, of which... Once Jeremy filled me in on it, I was enthused as he was, you know, and he came up with this uh, dark imagery, which is very much like his graphic novel, comic book world that, that Nick is knee deep in, uh, called Hand of the King. And I thought the lyrics were great, and um, I loved the way his, you know, what he was going to sing. Um, I knew it would really be a good marriage on the track. Now, the first time in the studio for him was very green because, you know, he didn't have a lot of experience. I know he was doing some recording at Gene's house in his bedroom. And that's not the same as going into a, you know, a real recording studio. But once uh, Nick got in there, um, it was pretty funny watching him get comfortable because I could just tell he wasn't that comfortable. But I, I could still hear, you know, the quality of his voice. And, and I knew that, um, you know, that he's going to get more comfortable. Maybe we'll do this one more time. But this is going to come out great, you know, and uh, we did the best we could that day. I remember he didn't know the term comp, what's comp mean, which is when you're taking the best of four, let's say four times you sing the verse, and you comp it, which means the best lines are chosen, sometimes words, you know. That was kind of funny, what's comp? You know, I mean, he said it kind of like, like, his, like his dad in a way. But uh, long story short, really, by the time we knew, we wanted him to double some lines in harmony, uh, of which we, we all kind of discussed. And then, of course, we booked another studio date for that. 
And Jeremy and I knew already we would probably ask him, hey, do you want to you know, sing, sing it again? And before we even asked him, he kind of offered that. Like, you know, I, let me take a stab at this. I think I could do it better. It was already really good, but the vocal that you hear on DK3 is really all from that second time that we uh, had him in the studio. So that was great, and I'm really proud of uh, his contribution, and I think it makes for a really special track. Not only because he's Gene's son, and that's a, a bit of a curiosity factor, it's just that I think he can be a real recording artist, you know, if he wanted to. That's going to be up to him. What uh, made you select this track as the lead single? Well, you know, it's interesting. I love a lot of the songs on the record, and it was really up to uh, the label Rocket Science to like throw it around a lot of their people, the radio people. The, they have young people that work there, and you know, Nick does have a young following, you know, and um, from the from the Family Jewel show, you know, and in the end. Uh, Every, everybody steered towards that, um, and and you know it was more of a consensus. And like I said, I love all the songs, and that song was definitely in my top three or four. So I figured, why not? Let's do it. You know. So um, I'm I'm very proud that uh, that was the choice. But I'd hate to be the one to choose. I don't think the artist should ever choose the first single. You know? Right. Not a good idea. Watch the stars. As they align Wings of jet lag Never look back Watch as the sky The dream crash Below him they sing Crushed under a tree Rising in shadows Under the hand of the king What about uh, Gene's track, Ain't Gonna Die? How'd that come about? Well, as I said, I had the, uh, the, you know, I was egged on by both Eric Singer and Jeremy to go ask ask Gene, you know, to be, invo- you know, be involved with the record. And when Gene said yes, I was like, okay, this is great. I remember getting together a few times with him, and Jeremy and I kind of had a track that we thought he would like, and he did like it, except he started changing it so much, I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. I, I thought he was changing it to the point where I lost what I wanted. So I kind of, at that point, of course, we would jam sometimes a little bit some ideas. This is all in Gene's office, which everyone has seen on the TV show. Um, and, and finally, we came across a, something that was really interesting and it was good. And our schedules were terrible, especially Gene being you know such a hardworking, busy guy. I and mean, then I'm traveling and going in and out of town. town but... Um, I, once I asked Jeremy, I said, uh, I'd like you to be there next time we get together because I think, um, you know, you kind of might be able to referee this thing so that we really get something done. And my instinct was right. Um, the last thing that I thought was good that had nothing to do with really the first thing we worked on became the chorus of Ain't Gonna Die. And I heard Gene singing something like Never Gonna Die or something at the end of his vocal line. And we pretty quickly had all the parts. In fact, I think we wrote all the music from that one idea that we had already. And um, of course, I was tape recording it. And then after that, um, I took it home and realized, you know, it was many months later before we actually were going to cut it in the studio. But we knew we had a song. 
and Jeremy and I demoed it very, very uh, rough in a rough, you know, kind of like simple demo form. And Gene kind of approved it. He guided us along as to how he was hearing and contributing that way. And then we booked the studio. Now, the week before that, I was going crazy, racking my mind, knowing that, like, we got to have a lyric concept for the year because I think we can finish the lyrics in a fairly short time and have them sing it. So um, I kind of got this epiphany about um, Ain't Gonna Die, the Never Gonna Die, really meaning um, Gene's legacy will never die. You know? Right. You know, we're not talking about, obviously, physically him dying. You know, we all die, but... but Gene has created something that will never die. This will be uh, around forever. It's that iconic already. And um, so Gene, I think, at first wanted to approach it with like a little more introspective kind of lyrics, maybe like I Walk Alone kind of thing, you know. And I, it didn't take me a long time to convince him, you know. Um, I had the first line, and that, that kind of set the pace, you know. People say I'm always using my cane. So I wanted it to be like him just telling everybody, you know, you, you know, you know, screw you, you know, I ain't right. going away no matter what you think. And then once we had that point of view, we sat down in this Henson uh, Studios, which is one of the finest here in LA, it used to be the AM Studios. We sat down in their aquarium lounge, this beautiful aquarium in there. And we just, you know, like kept throwing around ideas and one got stuck, someone else contributed, you know, and within that hour sitting in the aquarium, we finished the lyrics. And then Gene, like the pro he is, went in and sang and doubled it within an hour. And Jeremy and I were like high-fiving each other, knowing like, you know, high-fiving each other, sorry. <laughs> high-fiving. <laughs> uh, knowing that we accomplished what we always dreamed to, which would be get a killer performance out of Gene, you know, both uh, musically and lyrically. So. And then later on I did solos, and then we added strings, and then Jeremy borrowed an axe bass from Gene, and both Jeremy and I play uh, most of the bases on the record and uh, Jeremy was begging me I want to play the Zach's bass I want to play the bass I go, go for it I don't care <laughs> you know what I mean and then this, there it is you know but while we were in the studio cutting the track one other footnote besides the fact that they did film that for Family Jewels back in uh, it was shown in April an episode called Memphis Blues um, really they kind of showed Nick in the studio with us even though that wasn't Nick's song if you get what I mean but right. clearly you, you hear the music to uh, Ink of the Die and it's Laura's form. But uh, before Gene walked into the studio, the way we were rehearsing it with Brent Fitz, who was the drummer from uh, Union and I. Uh, right. Then, um, you know, he was playing it great, but he, he wasn't going over the top, and it was Gene's idea to make him play it more like Keith Moon, just be very energetic, and, and, and the track really is, and you know, the drums are very creative on that.
I'm the animal. You mentioned this previously that um, you had given the song to Gene. You'd also mentioned it when talking about Hand of the King before. Um, how did that end up in Tobias's hands? Well, once what was always what we called like the Gene Rocker, even though, like I mentioned before, Gene kind of, we fooled around with parts of it, you know, but I just thought that he was taking it in the wrong direction. Um, Eric always felt really strong about the track, and he was a little surprised, too, that Gene didn't jump in and finish it as is. But sometimes it's better to get somebody from the ground up, you know. But some guys like it when you give them the track that they did. And um, Nick liked the track, but he preferred the other one. So then we were like, what are we going to do with this song? And that, that did present a bit of a um, dilemma for, for Jeremy and I. And once again, uh, I always like to listen to friends that are you know, wise and talented as well. And Eric Singer and I had this event in Japan where all of a sudden at the meet and greet signing thing that we did, um, Avantages being played, which is Tobias Sammet's other project. He has two, uh, Ed Guy and Avantages. Right. And I said to Eric right away, what's this? Why are they playing it now? Oh, I play drums on it. This is that guy, Tobias. And I love the way Tobias sang. But, wow, you know, do you think he, you know, can song for two three? And Eric was like, right away, you know, you got to ask him, you know. So I remembered that, even though that was at least a year earlier than the decision to reach out to the guy to sing that particular song. But he loved the track, and I think what he added to the song was terrific. So he worked on some ideas. Uh, fortunately, he had a Ed Guy tour, in L you know, which ended in L.A. It was about a year ago, last October, uh, a little more than a year ago. And uh, I got to see the band, which I loved. You know, the, you know Got a, a good group. I see why he's got a good following. And then after that, um, we spent some time the next day. We had two days off in LA before going back to Frankfurt, and we worked on the lyrics. I already told him that he originally had something about uh, being like a dog, and I just thought it would be better if uh, his character was the animal. If you get what I mean. Gotcha. Uh, he was talking about some sort of revenge against the girl that kind of treated him. We dialed in the lyrics pretty quickly, and then the next day he sang it. And I know Jeremy was always like, Jeremy came with me to see him live, and we really enjoyed him. But uh, before that, he never heard of him, okay? And once we got him in the studio and he opened up his mouth, I mean, he, he might arguably be giving the, the, the biggest rock vocal on the album. You know, so I'm very grateful that he, he's on the record. And actually, I just returned the favor to him by uh, doing some guitar work for his next
lines. How did that track come about? Well, you know, this record went through many changes. You know, some of the original 10 songs were uh, maybe a little more melodic and pop than what actually wound up to be my record. And um, halfway through, once we had Nick and Gene and Tobias and Karabi singing his song, um, I kind of turned to Jeremy and said, you know, my previous two solo records had an instrumental on it, and we don't have an instrumental. And we did write something that we thought could be the instrumental, but we kind of forgot about it. And then when I thought about that one, I said, you know, I don't even really like that one. Uh, and then I just said, I'm going to think about a song, you know, I'm going to think about doing something. So that weekend, I actually came up with a really, really uh, a cool idea with with the theme in the choruses, what I'll call the choruses. I didn't have the title or anything, but I, I kind of knew that this is worthy of being recorded. And Jeremy, who's very, very particular and, uh, and talented and critical, and he came over to my house, I played it for him, and he, I said, what do you think? He goes like, uh, I love it, it's great. I got nothing to say, you know? And um, that, that was great. And uh, then I went ahead, I remember, usually Jeremy helped book the studios, but this time I kind of, I remember he, something happened where he either got busy or he got, he had like, a, a, you know, an awful flu thing that he wasn't making phone calls, if you know what I mean. So I started right. to reach out, and I'm thinking, I just ran into Kenny Aronoff like three months before that, who's the top of the heap of the drum people right. that hire. And he said to me that, you know, give me a call. You know, I'd like to be on your record. I'm not that expensive, you know, which was a clever way of saying I'll make it work. You know, we'll make it work. I'm right. sure when he plays with Tom Petty, he can get whatever he wants, you know, but I don't have, you know, a million-dollar budget, right? So sure. anyway, I called Kenny, and Kenny was really cool with me and really wanted to be on the record and worked out the business center right away. He said, what studio are you using? I told him a few of my favorites that, that Jeremy and I have been recording at, but... He recommended Steakhouse, and uh, that's a place here in North Hollywood that I remember doing some work with Gene uh, years ago. So the next thing I know, um, I'm trying to get in touch with the studio through the website and everything, not hearing back anything. Now I remember that Steve Lucas had something to do with that studio years ago. I didn't know if he still did, but uh, Luke being a really cool guy who I was starting to get an email from, and we bump into each other at events and things. Um, I, I reached out and emailed him, and he got right back to me and said, no, this is who you got to contact, here's a number, you know. Next thing you know, um, I'm going to lunch with him. He said, let's get together. And, of course, at that point, before the lunch even happened, Jeremy was like, you got to ask him to play on the song, you know. You know, we didn't even record the song yet, you know what I mean? And, right. You know, and I, I was kicking and screaming about that because Lucifer is just... Um, a very intimidating guitarist because he can just probably play anything. Um, he's, he's a very humble guy, but he's really a monster on guitar. So I was a little, you know, nervous about that. But in the end, um, once he heard the track and uh, he was very gracious and it took a little while until after the holidays and everything, so we recorded it probably in October, but we got him in there um, in the middle of January, I think. And he just did an amazing job, you know, and he, he kind of communication between the two the two of us on the track and for a real special uh, you ever sit there and actually say you know if I'm better than this guy this guy's you know like Luther's that much better than me um, I mean guitar players in general are pretty insecure 
but um, I, I'm not a fool with like who has like certain ability. I know what my strengths are, so even if sure. I don't see myself as being at the top, um, I know what I'm capable of doing, and I know why I've been successful and I can work. Sure. But Lukather is just one of these really incredible guitar heroes that the band that he's famous from is not uh, like like being the, the main guy like Van Halen is of, of sure. an amazingly high energy rock band it's not but this guy can, can really just, just play circles around most people you know? so, um, uh, it's just an honor that I, I kind of got through that and we were able to do something like that together it was quite a, quite a sport Cool. And funny you mention that because Eddie Van Halen always seems to drop his name when he mentions uh, other other guitarists that he's yeah. into. They're really good friends. And again, Eddie uh, Ed, Eddie is not Steve, uh, Steve can like kind of venture into this like kind of jazzy fusionist kind of thing with rock chops. And even Eddie doesn't really play jazzy, although you know Eddie's a magician on the guitar and the feel that Eddie comes across with. But I've seen Lucifer do very Jeff Beckish kind of things, which is really holy grail of guitar playing. You know, sure. Jeff Beck's just a monster. So. He's just one of those monsters in the day. Cool that you were able to uh, incorporate him within the album. Yeah, yeah. And if, if it's over someone's head, don't worry, there's plenty that it's not over their head. <laughs> <laughs> EP that's available on iTunes, I think uh, you really can notice that. Uh, I mean, definitely the the song that you did with uh, John Karabi, to me, is one of the best songs that I've heard him ever sing on. Well, thanks. I mean, that was our goal with John, was, was that you knew what the blue, like some of the highlights of the Blue Room. Right. And 
wanted to absolutely uh, like like do a version of a of a, the best that the best for John and I and, and, and what were the best elements of the Blue Room song. So uh, no friend of mine certainly hit that hit that mark. Absolutely. Is there any talk of you and John maybe doing something in the future? I know he's putting out a solo album. Would you be involved in that at all, or maybe revisiting Union at all? I actually co-wrote a song for that record, and I'm waiting for when he'll, um, you know, be serious with that particular track, so I can jump in and do some guitar work. So um, we've talked about that, but uh, I haven't yet yet uh, done that work. Okay. So he's um, extremely. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to him for <coughs> excuse me for the uh, you know. The performance he did, so I kind of owe him one, you know. Sure, sure. It's sure. all, all good. I Walk Alone presented to you? Well, I Walk Alone was a... It started with a theme that I had on guitar that was kind of like Hendrix-y, Third Stone from the Sun vibe that Gene really liked. And we kept fooling around with it 
and we weren't really sure what to do with it. But then suddenly um, he had this, you know, picking guitar verse idea, and 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 then we kind of incorporated a way to um, direct it into a chorus. So we used to do a lot of demo work on that. Actually, um, I'd go to his house, we'd make some changes, and then I'd go home and demo it. And back then, I mean, you know, I was working on a what's considered pretty primitive now, but, you know, like an Akai 12 track or something like that, or I might even right. have my Fostex 16 track, but either way, we were able to put something together that we kind of had a song, and I remember we got a chance to actually record it in the studio um, just just to, you know, see what it what it would do, and, and uh, it, it, it really made, it went through so many changes. There was so much work done on that, and then at one point I just had this idea of, like, that the bridge that we wrote was a little, uh, I'll use the word pedestrian or ordinary, and then back then I even, I still had my trusty four-track floating around my house, and cassette four-track, I mean. Right. So I literally mm -hmm. took that section and turned it around on the uh, four-track, and the next thing I know, I love the way that sounded, and Gene, Gene loved it too. So suddenly now the demo of it, even though it was kind of Frankenstein put together, because it's before Pro Tools when you can do things like that, really at a high you know quality digital rate you know um but everybody got the idea what it was going to be so um i wasn't aware i'd be actually singing it though i kind of got that opportunity because of a few reasons i sang the demo just out of um to show what's going on with the song and gene wrote uh the lyrics actually but by the time it was time to go into this by, by studio recording time Toby Wright, the co-producer of Carnival Souls, was kind of like, um, you know, you sang the demo, you should sing the song, it would be really cool. So he kind of pushed me in that direction, you see. And, and he kind of convinced Gene and Paul that, that it would be appropriate for me. At the time, I didn't realize that they were plotting to go into makeup and trying to figure out how to do the reunion tour, which would truly mean I walk alone, you know what I mean? And maybe that's why I... Um, I was given a, a, the green light to go do the song, and, uh, you know, I, I'm still proud of it, even though I was very, very nervous singing it, but I gave it my all, and I, can't, I think it's a really creative track for kids. How was it like singing that song live with Union? Oh, I always enjoyed it. I think we used to do it really great. You know, in fact, I, I just did it in Australia on my uh, dates with the band down there. It's not an easy song. There's a lot of, a lot of parts, and there's a lot of guitar playing that I got to do. I try to imitate backwards guitars is not easy, you know, because there were a couple of solos even that were backwards. So, right. but I, you know, again, uh, it, I look at that song as as um, if if Queen was implementing some of, you know, I mean, if Kiss was implementing some of Queen's tricks, studio tricks, what would we do? You know what I mean? So, and then my vocal being a little like kind of trippy, Pink Floyd kind of, you know. Um, very different for Kiss. It was it was really a bold statement from the band. I was very um, proud that we we left it the way it was and it came out as good as it did.
tears are falling. I previously um, seen you at a Kiss convention, and you mentioned that the solo in Tears Are Falling is one of your uh, favorite things that you've recorded throughout your career. Right. Um, is that still the case today? And how did this whole song evolve? Yeah, well, I mean, Paul, I remember Paul playing me that song in his apartment in New York at the time. And, and how that it had this kind of rock Motown riff to it that I really liked. And I didn't really know what the solo would be. I just kind of gave him a thumbs up and I told him how I thought that that was going to be a great song. And once we got into recording it and the solo came up, um, that was my first album really recording with the band. I did a little bit of work on Animal Eyes, but sound was really my big idea. But I worked real closely with both Gene and Paul whenever I did the solo. Paul and I um, kind of worked on the harmony part and the thematic part of it. Then I'd come up with a kind of like interesting, trippy riff that um, would, would, you know, just keep it a little bit different than things that I did before, because that was my role then, to play with some of the, uh, you know, 80s unabandoned lead guitar work, if you know what I mean. Right. Uh, especially with people like, uh, you know, Van Halen and you know, uh, really big and stuff. Sure. So, I mean, I really feel that the solo came, came out quite, quite good, you know, something the fans always enjoy What are your thoughts on that song? Well, you know, it's interesting. In America, it wasn't as big a hit as Europe, okay? And um, it really was a, it was one of the biggest songs um, over there for, for Kiss. I mean, the entire Kiss catalog, you know what I mean? But I remember Adam Mitchell, um, who's a good friend of mine, 
um, wrote that with Paul, and I remember hearing the demo, and I said, oh, that's damn catchy, that's going to be great. You know, there's just something real arena-like about it. You know, of course, it became the title of the record, and that was the album that Ron Nevis produced, right? I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I think Paul really sold that well. I think it was like one of those, we love it loud, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Things, you know. And my solo, I, I did, like, my version of that kind of Van Halen modern, you know, some finger tapping and, you know, some tricks and whammy bar things. And, and that was very um, indicative of the 80s, you know. But when I revisit it, I still think it's really, really cool. And I remember um, only about a year, no, about two years ago, some friends from Sweden that, that do these clubs there, um, these party nights, they wanted to do a cover of Crazy Night. And since I knew a couple of the guys in the band that was doing it, and it was going to be played like on all the advertisements for the going out on the Saturday night in San Diego, you know they know how to party there. You know I mean? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I actually said, let, send me the file, I'll do the solo. You know, so I actually did the solo for that. You know, they were thrilled to death. You know? So, you know, instead of having somebody destroy it and copy it really poorly, you know, it'd be better <laughs> for me to play it. So, so and and I, I did that song. Um, you know, I did it in Australia as well. Just the crowd people. When you do these tracks with uh, guests, uh, how many of the Kiss songs do you actually sing, or do you just stick to uh, just doing "I Walk Alone" and have guest uh, vocalists take care of the rest? Usually, I mean, I cannot sing like a Paul Dean. I mean, these guys are have a, have a great range and great power in their voice. So then I'll have uh, other people do the vocals, but they just know I'm not going to do it justice. What about Forever? Well, Forever originally, um, I, you know, it was Michael Bolton and Paul getting together and writing a really cool, what they called a power ballad from back then. And to be quite honest, uh, my first approach with the solo was maybe to do the melody on, like, electric guitar, you know, really in a very melodic Van Halen kind of way. And Paul was like, I don't hear that. You know, and I was kind of like, oh, boy, here we go. You know, <laughs> creative you know um, differences but 
you know, that was one great thing I learned in this is that there's never a right answer until everybody kind of looks at each other and goes like, that's good. You know what I mean? Right. And in, in the end, he he goes, no, I'm hearing like an acoustic thing, kind of like Led Zeppelin. And I was like, huh? So this is way before iPods and things like that. And he ran out to go get the uh, Led Zeppelin album with the track he was thinking about. I already knew in my mind what he meant. But um, I found Paul's acoustic that was there at the studio and I started fooling around with it and by the time he came back with that tape you know I'd say 90% of the solo was was, was there if you get what I mean right and then mm -hmm. we just kind of like fine-tuned it from there and I, and I know it's one of my shining moments in the band so I was just thrilled to death that uh, Paul took it in a different direction and I was able to you know it's kind of like you know someone's throwing the ball and you know you're running for the touchdown but I definitely caught it Sure, absolutely. And was actually, uh, what, the highest uh, tracking song uh, as far as any uh, charts are concerned while you were with the band? Yeah, it might have been. You know, I, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to that stuff. At least it might have been in America, because I, I told you that crazy night thing. Yeah. It was really high in Europe. wrap things up with Unholy well Unholy was you know that was kind of like one of the songs that Vinnie Vincent you know the return of Vinnie Vincent is, is like contributing which you know I welcome because I know he had a good chemistry working with Paul and Gene uh, there's a lot of rumors around that about everything to do with Vinnie but I'll set the record straight here and just say I'm playing all the guitars on you know the, on, on you know that song there's some scratching guitars in the beginning that Gene swears he did you know, and maybe maybe Vinny did some of those too, or maybe it was only Gene. I don't know. I wasn't involved with the sound effect scratching. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, because the song comes up, kind of trying to sound some evil, weird thing. But and then I, I know Gene and I arranged some of the turnarounds in the song, um, but I really think it's an interesting tune because it's so dark and heavy and plodding and 
tricky, and then there's a part of it that's kind of Motown-like, too. You know, I just think it's a very challenging team, but what a killer hook, and uh, I think my solo is, is really special in that song. It's another one I like to talk about a lot. And I remember Steve Vai, which is, he's just a freaking alien on the guitar, you know. Right. Him, him, him making a comment about that one high note, there's a high harmonic note towards the end of the song that I hit. That I was just, you know, just real lucky to get. That just sounded great, and it's like, oh, I love that note, and that song, you know. So I definitely, um, you know, feel like I hit my my mark on that track, and I I think it's real important in, in, the, in the history of Kiss, obviously. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick, and you're listening to Ten on Mark Striegel Radio. So turn it up and enjoy. There you go. That was Unholy by Kiss. Behind us, you'll hear, coming off of Carnival of Souls, Master and Slave, a song that Bruce co-wrote with Paul Stanley. A very cool song and a very underrated album, in my opinion. Unfortunately, uh, from what I've heard in interviews that Bruce has conducted, specifically an interview he did with Mark and John from Talking Metal, he mentioned that Paul hates the album, but... I think it's one of their better albums. Uh, One of their non-makeup albums, let's put it that way. Uh, Again, let me thank Bruce for coming on the show. Let me also thank Kim from 60 Cycle for setting this interview up, along with the interview that you'll hear with Richard Patrick from Filter shortly. And if you're paying attention there to the beginning of the show, you'll see that uh, I've added IDs with Bumblefoot from GNR, Dave Rhodes from Airborne, and, you know, we're working on a bunch of others that will uh, hopefully be on the show shortly. And a lot of times we schedule these things, and uh, due to the artist's schedule, things don't always pan out. So, you know, what... What can you do? Just keep plugging away. And, you know, I have a bunch of interviews that I hope to be putting out over the course of 
you know, the next few weeks and months that will uh, revisit some of the interviews that I did for Mark Strugel Radio that have yet to be set up and released in podcast format. I'd like to do things, you know, add an interview per week. Unfortunately, over the course of the last few months, last three months specifically, I have been going nuts with bureaucratic bullshit pertaining to uh, an inheritance that I'm trying to settle for um, for my relatives. Uh, unfortunately, I am the only one that currently lives in the area of Spain where the inheritance needs to be settled. Um, so I need to take care of this for all of my aunts, uncles, uh, who are the people that will be inheriting all of, you know, what's there. Uh, there's eight of them. There's really nothing of great value that was left behind. You know, it's amazing how, you know, things depreciate over the years, especially if they're not taken care of. Um, out of all of this, you know, out of all the, uh, work that's been done, going nuts, going between various town halls, uh, banks to get bank documents and statements to lawyers and this and that. Uh, Once the IRS or the Spanish equivalent of the IRS is done with everything, uh, what that will mean is that uh, we'll be able to uh, purchase one of my uh, grandparents' old property and then probably spend about a year if not longer, fixing everything up. Uh, it's going to be a very uh, a very interesting chore because the entire house is going to have to be gutted and uh, we're going to have to uh, slowly but surely you know, refurbish everything. Uh, outside of that, been dealing with uh, all this um, uh, stuff regarding my job, uh, which I'd rather not get into. And uh, also, I uh, have some good news though that uh, be first time, be a first time father, sometime uh, early next year. So my wife and I are very excited about that. Uh, in any event, want to uh, thank you guys for listening to the show. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed hearing what I put together here with Bruce. And uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening, and uh, again, hopefully we'll have another episode up for you guys uh, next week. Let me leave you, leave you with a few seconds of Master and Slave here. See you next time. Bye, bye.